And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. When I was growing up, there was a really popular skit on Saturday Night Live called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. I I don't know if you've ever seen this, Um, but he had a number of clever sayings that were really taken from pseudo-psychology. And uh, one of the episodes opens up with this man gazing into a mirror at himself, and he says back to himself, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it. People like me. Well, I'm wondering this morning, what do you think about yourself? When you look in the mirror, when you think about who you are, how is it that you, you think about the nature of your character? Or, or do you think of yourself as good enough and, and as smart enough? Well, here's another question. Uh, don't want to confuse you too much or get too philosophical with you. But have you even thought about what it is that shapes the way that you view yourself as to whether or not you are good enough and smart enough. I know we've talked about this before, but we have all kinds of cultural isms that shape the way that we view the world and others, ourselves, and even God. One of those is consumerism. 
Uh, consumerism is a, a view in this world, in our country, that shapes us in so many ways that we don't even recognize. So consumerism, if you don't know, is uh, that belief that says essentially that we are defined by those things which we consume. In fact, the things that we consume, that we buy and we use up, even in some way shape our identity and the way that we view ourselves. Or maybe that's you this morning. I'm guessing it is in more ways than you know. But I believe there are a couple of dangers with consumerism. In fact, I was reading an article by Christianity Today where a couple of dangers were outlined by an author, Sky Jathani. And here's what she says about the dangers of consumerism. She says, first, consumerism reduces God from a deity to a commodity. Consumerism reduces God from a deity to a commodity. And his value begins to be determined by how you view whether or not he has made good on the things that you have signed up him with him for. And if he fails, then he's not really a good God anymore. Uh, a second way that we find consumerism affecting us spiritually is that it reduces Jesus from Lord to a label. Uh, so many of you uh, have products that you buy and you identify with. So for instance, you'll hear me often talk about the fact that Apple products are superior. It's just true. And so... Uh, what that really exposes, though, is there's an identity issue that I have created with Apple products, right? And maybe for you, it's the kind of car you drive, the neighborhood that you live in, but there are things which you consume that you have determined actually give you value in who you are. And friends, we live in a culture that has been divided, defined that way. We associate with brands like Starbucks and other things, and that carries with it those things that we purchase. Uh, we have an expectation that our identity will flow out of those things. Now, here's the problem. See, Christianity can become a brand like Apple or Starbucks to express our identity. But in our culture, I have found that it no longer carries with it the expectation of obedience and allegiance. It's a brand. It's about what we get out of it, not what we have been called to suffer and sacrifice ourselves to. Make no mistake, we treat Jesus like a commodity, and that explains, I believe, why we look at our nation and the world around us and we see families falling apart. Uh, we, we find uh, husbands abandoning wives and wives abandoning husbands. We find folks jumping from church to church, and it's no big deal. And, and the reason it's not, the reason that folks can leave children and feel okay about it is because we have actually turned people and others and even God himself into a commodity. See, when the relationship isn't providing what we want, we just go and buy a new one. But we're back in the amazing true story of Jesus this morning in Mark's gospel, and we have good news to folks like us who struggle with consumerism. And see, here uh, in Mark's gospel, we have seen some amazing things about Jesus that are completely true. He stopped storms. Uh, we find that he healed the sick. He even raised the dead. Uh, this is a man like no other that we have seen. He's pretty amazing. But this morning, Jesus is going to tell his disciples that the wisdom of the kingdom of God is going to actually turn the wisdom of this world upside down on its head. In other words, uh, we are going to see this morning as we are confronted with this rich young ruler, uh, a sense in which uh, God is going to show us what wisdom looks like according to Christ. As consumerism is trying to flip it back over this way, God says, no, you need to look at the world in a completely new way. And we're going to see that this morning. See, the rich... The rich 
we are told here, are lacking, and the first must be last. Not the way that our world thinks. But consumerism is fighting against Christianity to flip the kingdom of God, and here the rich young ruler will expose that reality this morning. Now here's our big idea. If you take notes, write this down. The big idea that we're going to be thinking about is this. Losing everything to gain Jesus frees us to serve others. Losing everything to gain Jesus frees us to serve others. And we're going to see that in a number of different ways. Uh, we see that first in verses 17 to 23, or 17 to 22. And here what we're going to find is, is that everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Everything minus Jesus equal nothing. Uh, you'll see this first uh, in verses 17 to 22. Now, you'll notice in your Bibles in verse 17, uh, we're introduced to a man who Matthew describes as being young and rich, and Luke will tell us is also a ruler. But here, Mark buries the lead. He doesn't tell us about what this guy is like until the very end, because he wants to, to focus our attention into one aspect of this man's character. Now, at first glance, he looks a lot like other folks who have approached Jesus and fallen down before him and have seen really marvelous results. But here what we find is the man, as he falls before Jesus, says this, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe some of you have that question this morning. And I think this man is in a good place as he starts out of the gate. He believes in an afterlife. And not only that, he doesn't take it lightly or for granted. Uh, he, he wants to know what must he do to inherit eternal life. He's not asking for a freebie. He says, I'm in. What do I need to do, achieve, accomplish, so that I can grasp that thing that we all want, which is eternal life? And Jesus responds in verses 18 to 19. Look there with me at what he says. He says, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. Uh, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Sounds like a good word. See, Jesus, as he responds, uh, he tells him here really clearly, he says, okay, if you want to know uh, about good, let me just begin uh, not with your question, but with uh, your statement and how you addressed me. And he says, you have called me good teacher. And now notice that he is very quick to take attention that has been placed on himself as a good teacher, and he moves it towards God. And he says, I, I want you to recognize who God is. God is good. He is altogether unadulterated goodness. There is nothing evil or dark in him. He is good like no other. He is on a different realm good. He is not like other goods that you know. In fact, all that he does is good. By the way, we don't need to perceive God as being good or affirm his actions as being good for God to be good, right? Uh, God does not need to justify his actions before us as good for them to qualify as good. As soon as we start demanding that of God, we have not recognized God for being as good as he is. But here what we find is that as Jesus 
is demonstrating and, and discussing the goodness of God, I believe that there is a reason that he's doing this here. See, Jesus might, might be tipping the hat that he is the God-man because you know, if only God is good and he's called Jesus good, maybe he's recognized that he's God. But I, I don't think that's necessarily what's going on here. See, I think it's probably more likely that Jesus has brought up the goodness of God because he's about to devastate this man's standard of good along with that of the command, his command, view of the commandments. See, he is about to show this man that he is as good as he thinks he is, not as good as he needs to be. Now, you can almost hear, you can almost hear the excitement in this guy's voice when he responds to Jesus, right? Now, Jesus says, you got to keep the commandments, and he quickly spits back. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. What a good day. You've said, I've got to do this to inherit eternal life. I'm in. Here's the problem. His joy turns to sorrow in verses 21 to 22. Why? Because Jesus says, looking at him and loving him, you still lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And once you've done that, you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, this man went away sorrowful for, catch this, he had great possession. There's that buried lead. See, when it says that Jesus, looking at him and loved him, after he had said that he had kept the law, I believe this gives us an indication about how Jesus received his claims. Commentator R.T. France speaks of this statement and Jesus' love for him in response to what he said, saying this, So far, this man has passed Jesus' careful scrutiny. And Jesus is duly impressed. Now, (laughs) let me just ask you this morning. How many of you feel confident that you would survive the careful scrutiny of Jesus and leave feeling as though Jesus were going to be duly impressed? Is that you? That's not me. Like, I'll just be honest. When I think about going before Jesus and him looking at me and seeing, do I measure up? Do I meet the bar? I think, I, don't, I want to pass on that assignment, right? I mean, this is Jesus. And this man received a commendation from Jesus. And yet, and yet, despite the commendation, catch these devastating words. Jesus tells him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and come follow me. Now, don't miss this devastating math for good people. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. That means that all of your good deeds and your accomplishments can't earn you treasure in heaven like eternal life. Take note that Jesus, he does not call all people to sell all of their possessions and to physically follow him to Jerusalem where he will be crucified as he does specifically for this man. But this young, successful man, who who it seems is the kind of guy that has the Midas touch, everything that he touches in business turns to gold. He is successful. Uh, He is a, a man who lived a good moral life and believed in the afterlife. I'm guessing that he had a, a healthy 401k. He was paying his house down quickly. He received regular promotions. He drove a Lexus. He paid his taxes. He gave to his synagogue, took nice vacations, and all of the Jewish dads wanted their daughters to marry this guy. He's a good guy. But catch this. 
He's almost too good to be true. And yet Jesus says he's still not good enough for eternal life. And he forfeited his future for his fortune on that day. See, he's good, but he he loved money more than eternal life. Now, many things other than money can keep you from the one thing that you really need. That's to follow Jesus wholeheartedly with our lives. But here's the devastating reality of the gospel. Good people go to hell. That's the message of the Bible. Good people, there are many good people who do not receive eternal life or treasures in heaven. Why? Why is it? Why can we look at people and say they are good and yet they don't make it? It is because our scales are broken. See, Jesus just told us, when God is the standard of good, when God, God the Almighty who created all things good, the the fountain of every blessing through whom there is no good that comes apart from him, when that God is the standard of good, this is a devastating reality, none of us are good enough. And even the best of us are more sinful than we know. See, apart from Jesus, we are shadier than our shadows. But God is more concerned with the idols of our hearts than the money in our banks. That's what God's worried about. He's not worried about how much money you have. He has the cattle on 10,000 hills. He owns all the cattle. He made them. He doesn't need our money. The, The problem that this man has is not that Jesus needed a loan. The problem is this man's heart was not committed to Jesus above all else. And he knew it and he calls him out. Now just let that sink in. This man, almost too good to believe and yet not good enough. Now don't miss, if this math is bad for good people, catch what this devastating math is for the rest of us. If he's not good enough, what about you and what about me? What does that mean for us? See, when a lot of people come to church I hear this a lot as a pastor when I meet new folks. They look around and they see everybody in their Sunday best, right? Now for some of you that that means like your shiny shiny Clark's shoes or whatever and others you you just pull out your best flip-flops, right? But, But you look just good to everybody else and you just assume that everything's so good and Everybody's kind of the rich young ruler, and I'm the one that's not the rich young ruler. I'm the one that doesn't really fit in here. And yet, according to Jesus in the New Testament, this rich young ruler, uh, he is the, the man that most of us are not. We are mostly not as good as this rich young ruler, I don't think. I think he is superbly good. And not only that, when we look around and we think, oh, we see rich young rulers everywhere, we think they have some kind of spiritual advantage over us. And so maybe we don't belong here. But catch this, what Jesus has to say to us is that this rich young ruler actually has not a spiritual advantage, but a spiritual disadvantage. See, the reality is that most of us are a lot more like the disciples in this story who are seeing this rich young man and who are shocked that a man like that would not be received by Christ and would not have eternal life. They think he has an end. I mean, hasn't he been blessed by God? Isn't he the Psalm 1 man whom God seems to be blessing his way? And yet even he, even he, Jesus says, is not good enough. See, those disciples, I believe, are watching and asking, if this man can't make it, then what hope do we have? And maybe that's you when you see Christ this morning. See, most of us would get queasy at the thought of having Jesus evaluate us according to the law. Who could stand And I'm sure that's what's going on in the disciples' mind. If he can't pass the test, what's to come of us? Here's the beauty. Jesus, because he is the God-man, perceives their thoughts. 
And in verses 23 to 27, he actually confronts the disciples' questions before they ask it. (laughs) Only Jesus can do this. And here Jesus says to them that their human condition, this is the encouragement he gives, catch this, your human condition, I know you're discouraged, but catch this, it's worse than you think. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Thank you. That's good lesson in counseling. That's how we do it here. But God's plan for redemption, hear this, it's better than you can imagine. And we need to hear both of those messages. Your condition is worse than you think, but the help of redemption that's available to you is better than you can imagine. Now, here's how he does it. Second, notice he says in verses 23 to 27 that God can save those who can't possibly save themselves. God can save those who can't possibly save themselves. Uh, Look with me in verses 23 to 27. This is what it says. And Jesus, he looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now take note of how Jesus counsels these disciples' fears. Once again, he starts by amazing them with how bad the situation is. And if that's not bad enough, it says that then he goes on to shock them with just how bad things are. See, he startles them with the upside-down wisdom of the kingdom of God, where financial advantage, catch this, is spiritual disadvantage. Financial advantage is a spiritual disadvantage in the kingdom of God. Now, that amazed his disciples. But in verse 25, notice that they are exceedingly astonished or or shocked when Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, uh, I know that you've probably, if you've heard this preached, then you've heard uh, pastors before say something to the effect of, so the eye of a needle was this gate in Palestine that was extremely inconvenient to, to have someone pass a camel through because it was like low and they would have to take all the, the stuff off the camel's back and then he would have to sort of crawl through and then they would have to load up their possessions on it. And so it was just really inconvenient. Like that's, that's really what is going on with the eye of a needle here. Now, I think that's wrong for a couple of reasons. I could say more, but I think at least a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, Uh, what you might find if you were to do research is that there's actually no historical evidence anywhere that there was ever a gate in Palestine called the Eye of a Needle. So that's one reason why I think it's just clear that, that it's not speaking of just a gate that was inconvenient to enter. Now the second reason really is just right here in the text. As you read, you'll notice that what Jesus is saying here is not like, hey, it's just really difficult for somebody rich to get saved. That's not what he says, is it? No, he says it's what? It's impossible. Now, I know when you're thinking through this, you're thinking, well, I don't know if it's really impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle, right? An actual camel, uh, a needle, 
I think I could make that happen, like MacGyver style, right? And in your mind somewhere, you're thinking to yourself, I've got a Vitamix. Mike, we could, we could figure this out. Now, maybe that sounds like a good and clever idea, but just remember this. In this analogy, in this story, you're the camel, right? Do you want to put yourself in a Vitamix so that you can get through the... No. See, we, what we know is, is that really what this is trying to say is that it's impossible to go through, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Camel was the biggest animal that they had in Palestine. In other areas where rabbis had bigger animals like elephants, they would say it's harder for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. But here it's a camel. Why? Because it is impossible. It is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that's why I believe we find the disciples here crying out, then who can be saved, right? See, Jesus leads them to despairing of their own efforts to save themselves. And and only when we despair of ourselves are we really ready for hope that only God can provide. Which is what Jesus does in verses 27. You notice right after he says it's impossible, he says right after that, but. And don't you love buts in the Bible, right? But God, Ephesians 4, but here we have but not with God, or, or is this impossible, right? Because he says, for all things are possible with God. Now, don't miss this. The disciples assumed that this moral, rich man had a leg up. But Jesus says he has a leg that's shackled down by his wealth. It's a warning. Earthly advantages, they can equal spiritual disadvantages. Now, don't miss this. It's also sinful, here, for, for a man, we need to see here that it's sinful for a man not to make every effort, just to have a balanced view, to provide for his family. So the Bible says that, that, that a man that doesn't provide for his family and make sure that they're provided for is sinning. So of course the Bible's not saying that you don't need to provide for your family. That, it, that it's bad to, to invest or to save money or to make money. That's not what he's talking about. Wealth isn't sinful, it's dangerous. So we need to be careful about wealth and what our hearts can do with it. And it's not the money as much as it is what our hearts do with the money. See, when money controls the direction of our lives more than Jesus does, money has become the Lord of our lives. It controls us. And Jesus doesn't tell us to give to the church because, again, he wants to get the money out of our wallets or out of our banks. He does it so that he can get the idols out of our hearts. And here we encourage in our church generous giving. We encourage generous giving at Trinity Bible Church, and what that means is is that our lives look differently because we're Christians in the way that we give generously to the church. That's what what happens here. We encourage that. Be a generous people. A a great way to loosen our grip on our greed is to be a generous person. So there are a couple of ways that we we can think about this that we'll get to in a minute. But first, we need to see here clearly that Jesus says there is a, a reason that you need to give. He says we should, we should give and understand that money is dangerous. And because of that, what I would encourage us to do is to make sure that we are actually praying for those who have more financially than us. I mean, have you ever thought about that? When your friend gets that promotion and, and you're feeling jealous, you ought, you, ought, you ought to instead feel concerned for their soul. Like happy that God's blessed them, but also praying that that gift would not become a God in their lives? Have you, have you thought of praying for them in that way? 
It's a great way that you should pray for those who have prosperity. You should pray that God would protect their hearts from shifting confidence from Jesus Christ to Benjamin Franklin, right? He's on the $100 bill. I looked it up on Wikipedia. (laughs) See, the gospel reorients the way that we think about money. So think about it. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little greedy man who found Jesus and became generous. That's what the gospel does to our hearts. Now, four thoughts quickly on the way that you should think about giving. One is prioritize giving to the local church. You know, giving to nonprofits has gone up. Giving to the local church has gone way down, and that's uh, across the board. If local churches go away, parachurch organizations die. We need to give first to the local church. Second, budget how much you plan to give month by month. Uh, Put it as part of your budget. This is how much we plan to give. And give, and try not to get behind. If you get behind, you, you tend not to give. Pay ahead when summer's come. Summer's coming. A great way to make sure that you continue to be thoughtful and generous is to pay ahead. We have some folks who do that or set up an automatic payment. Third, don't give out of guilt. But even when you feel like you need to give because you're feeling guilty about not giving, give anyway, right? Like work on your motives, but don't be disobedient until your motives catch up to your faithfulness. And fourth, start young. Start young. Uh, It gets harder when you're older and you have more responsibilities, not easier. Go ahead and train yourself now to to be giving faithfully to gospel work to the glory of God. But here's the more important message here, though. I don't think this text is just about money. See, God's calculations, they work differently than man's. God only saved those who can't possibly save themselves. That's the message that we need to see here. See, see, nothing is impossible with God. And what good news for spiritually bankrupt people, right? Like, that's great news. It's not that Jesus has come for those who can kind of like subsidize their salvation. No, Jesus came for those who have nothing to put into their salvation. What a glorious God we serve. Now, I'm not good enough to save myself, but God is great enough to save me. Now, the one thing that, man, the, the one thing that this man lacked was Jesus. And when the hope of our souls is tied to something other than Jesus, we will drift towards either arrogance or despair. Maybe you've experienced those emotions in the same day. Isn't that striking? Have you ever thought about that in your human heart? How how in the same day, maybe even the same hour, maybe within minutes or seconds of one another, you can go from being proud and boasting in something that you can do to pitying yourself and despairing over your inability. Did you know that both of those, I believe, often are are tied to a grander reality and the same reality, which is that we have not anchored our value and identity in Christ. If we are trying in of ourselves and our own gifts and strengths and all of those things to take confidence in who we are before God and others, if that's where we are rooting or grounding or anchoring our worth, then it will lead to us either being arrogant despairing, and sometimes both at the same time. See, we need to be anchored in our value and our worth in Christ and His work alone. Both boasting and pity comes from a heart that looks to ourselves and not Christ. Why? Well, because third, in verses 28 to 30, we see this. Nothing plus Jesus equals everything and then some. Nothing plus Jesus equals everything and then some. Now, I love this. We haven't heard from Peter, and I always love to hear from Peter. 
Uh, One, because he always says stupid stuff and it makes me feel good about myself. But another reason is because I find that when he speaks, Jesus is able to make things more clear. And he says things most of us are thinking but wouldn't say out loud. But you can hear the wheels turning in Peter's head as he does the math and tells Jesus, oh, but see, (laughs) we have left everything and followed you. They have left everything to follow Jesus. Now, now this isn't to say that Peter didn't leave his house in Capernaum because we know it looks like that was like base camp. He still had a house, right? But they have left so many things, relationally and otherwise, to follow Jesus. And he will one day literally take up his cross for Christ. And Jesus responds to Peter in verses 29 to 31. And look how he responds to Peter this time. Verses 29 to 31, it says this. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. I mean, what a glorious promise here. See, Here, Jesus promises a couple of amazing things. Did you see it? First, we find here that Jesus says Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus and have followed him, can expect a dramatic return on everything that we give towards the kingdom. That's our hope, a dramatic return on everything that we sacrifice for the kingdom. And just think about that. For believers, good doesn't merely triumph over evil, Jesus says it exceeds it by a hundred times. Like, isn't that great math for us? Like, you sacrifice this, and God says, you're getting a hundred times that back? Now, just think about that for a second. Uh, You'll remember uh, a decade ago, um, there was a guy by the name of Bernie Madoff, who made off with a lot of people's money with a Ponzi scheme for investment. You know why everybody was investing with him? Because he promised you 17% back annually. 17%. Now just think about this. Jesus says he promises you 100 times return on your investments. Do you know what percentage back that is? Everybody's scared to do the math. 10,000. 10,000 times back. Let me just ask you this morning. If you really believe today, if I told you, if you go invest in Apple today, you will get 10,000% return on anything that you put in. How many of you would just like invest it right away? Most of you are like, I wouldn't believe you. Uh, I know you're not a good financial investor. But if you really trusted me, say I was Jesus, and I said, if you invest in that today, you'll get 10,000% return. How many of you would go sell everything and invest? Like, right? How many of us don't? Right? See, the promise that we've been given, we need to put our confidence in it. And if we put our confidence in it, our lives will be reshaped and reoriented around Jesus in new and profound ways. I mean, what a promise that Jesus gives to us. 10,000% return. And catch this, he doesn't isolate it to money. Did you notice that? Not just money. It's not just the money that you invest in the kingdom, that's true. But, but it's also those things which you have to sacrifice when you lose a relationship. 
Uh, when you lose a relationship for following Christ and seeking to be faithful, or you lose a relationship as you're seeking to follow Jesus. He says, uh, those who have lost uh, family, it will be returned to you uh, 10,000 times. Now here's the deal. I don't know how God does that. Like you lose a child and, and, you're, and you're wondering, how does God like restore that? I don't know. But here's what I do know. My God is greater than my ability to imagine. And I trust him in that. That he's going to repay and restore all that has been lost. And not only that, what we know from Joel 2 that God even promises this, if you want to take it one deeper. He says that even those things that you lose as those who are the people of God, when you sin, those losses will be restored as well. In Joel 2, you'll remember that we're told that the people of Israel have sinned against God. And, 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 and they have had a locust plague come and wipe them out. It's devastated them. They've starved And God promises after that in Joel 2.25 that a new day is coming. A new day is coming, and on that day God promises to restore the years the locust has eaten. You see that? If that's that's true for the people of God in Israel, how much more for those who have the blood of Christ on them? See, nothing plus Jesus equals everything and then some. And there's no way to understand what that looks like in the face of some of life's horrific tragedies, but here's what we can bank on. What is gained will far outweigh what is lost. That's a promise straight from Christ himself. But we see a second thing in these verses. You'll notice in verse 31, another thing here is that the first, many of the first, will be last. That's interesting, isn't it? That's not quite the way this world works. But the second thing that we see here is that many who are first will be last. And notice verse 31 says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I think I've told some of you before that I I love explaining this text to my five-year-old, Jack. Uh, We were in bed one night and we were talking and he was like, Daddy, now that we're away from the brothers, you can be honest with me, who who do you love most? (laughs) Right? And, um, and so I like to be clever with Jack. He's fun to think with. And I said, well, you know, Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. So I love you the last most. And he giggled and he said, no, that's not right. And I had to look it up and show him, right? I had to read it to him in the Bible. He goes, oh, well, that doesn't seem right. Okay. And so he said, okay, you love me the last most. And that's kind of our thing. We'll get in bed sometimes and say, hey, daddy, who do you love the least? And I'm like, well, of you, of course. And he giggles like, I know. <clears throat> so one day his uh, little brother Johnny's in the room. He comes in and he says, uh, hey, Dad, who do you love most? Like, really, who do you love most? And, uh, and Jack's right there. And um, <laughs> I said, uh, well, uh, I love you the most. And then Jack goes, ha, ha, I knew it. I knew he loved you the most. <laughs> and John's like, I don't get it. But what does Jesus mean here, right? What does he mean when he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Well, it might mean that many of those who seem to be the first in this life, like this rich young ruler, might be last in the life to come or worse. Of course, that is true generally. We find that. There are many in this world that might seem to be first but will be last, but maybe not even last and worse in the kingdom that is to come. But it could also be a specific warning to Peter himself. Peter who is consistently pushing himself 
forward, wanting to make booze for the three at the transfiguration. Uh, you know, wanting to be the one that Jesus talks to, the one that leads out, that speaks first. He's very reactionary and he wants to lead. And so maybe it's that Jesus is actually speaking to Peter. You know, just remember Peter. Many of the first shall be last and many of the last shall be first. So think about the way that you're living. But here what we find is, is that in the midst of this, there are two brothers that in verse 34 to 35, James and John. You know, part of the, the power three, the inner circle of Jesus, the, the ones who are on the Mount of Transfiguration. They seem, when they hear Jesus to say this, to taste blood in the water like a shark, right? Because then they, in 35 to, 30, to uh, 45, start fighting with each other and the other disciples. They say, hey, Jesus, can, can we be on your left and right in the seats of honor? Why? Well, now that Peter's out, <laughs> I think it's clear who's going to be sitting on the left and right of Jesus. Like, we're the ones that he always prefers. And if Peter is out, these two are calling shotgun on the seats of honor. And they want to sit on his left and right in glory. I think that the, the seat that they want in glory is on the throne in Israel where Jesus will reign. And Jesus says to them, you don't even understand what you're asking because my glory will be made known at the cross. See, that's the cup that he will, he says that he will have to drink in verses 30, uh, 35 to 45. And that's the baptism that he must be baptized in. It is the cross. And the seats to the left and right of Christ, uh, they have already been prepared for someone else. Two other criminals that will hang side beside Jesus Christ himself. And the other disciples, they erupt because they didn't, they didn't call dibs on the good seats first. And they don't understand what it is that it means to follow Jesus and what they've been called to. And Jesus explains this. He says, they want the seats of power, but in Jesus' kingdom, the good seats go to those who lay down their lives for others as servants. That's what it looks like to be a leader amongst the people of God, is laying down, sacrificing your life for others. The first must be last in God's upside-down kingdom. But Jesus, here, he calls us all to a life of self-sacrifice. Because many of the first shall be last. Now, I'm just curious, as you're thinking about that, and you're to gaze in your mirror today and say, who am I? Would you say that your life is characterized by self-sacrifice? And not because you're such a good person innately in and of yourself, but because of who Jesus is and who he is for you. Because you have the Holy Spirit within you. Is he making you more self-sacrificial in the way that you live before others? Because Jesus says, many of the first shall be last and many of the last shall be first. And how does that look in your life today? This morning, are you serving at church? Do you have a job? Are you looking to serve others? And when you think about the job you want, do you want the job that like makes you look best, makes you feel best, or the one that's needed, that most, most fully feels like Jesus laying down himself for you and me? You know, I tell people all the time uh, that they come and they want to serve, and I love, we have so many people who come and they're like, I want to do whatever, and I just love to hear that. Like, whatever the need is, just send me in. I love that because it's so much like Jesus, right? Uh, I'm reminded of uh, the night as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room discourse in John 13. He begins before he tells them how to love one another by showing them how to love one another and he washes the disciples' feet. A very grimy, 
difficult, gross job back then. A lowly, a lowly job. And I always think, couldn't somebody else like wash feet and Jesus could be doing more important stuff like raising people from the dead or something? And yet Jesus here is demonstrating for them that he is willing to do the lowly job because that's what it looks like to be godlike, to serve others, to stoop down to help those who can't help themselves. That's what people who love God do. Is that you today? Are you serving in that way? What about your families? Are you self-sacrificial? And I'll be honest with you, after this weekend, I hate preaching this message. I'm like, man, I'm not nearly as self-sacrificing as I need to be for my wife and my kids. Or do you expect others to meet your needs? That's not what Jesus did. He didn't come for what he can get, but to give to those who need it. But there's a last thing that we see here, and that's this, that Jesus gave everything for us. See, not only did Jesus wash our feet, but he gave everything for us, literally. Now, verses 32 to 35 tell us explicitly how Jesus will enter Jerusalem and be handed over to the Jews who will hand him over to the Gentiles to be killed. Jesus, think about this, literally left the courts of heaven uh, where he had the perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit eternally. There was nothing lacking relationally for Jesus. There was nothing lacking in a sense of what he needed. He had every good that he needed to be satisfied, infinitely so, and yet this one, the Son of God, left the courts of heaven to condescend and come down to earth a broken world filled with darkness, so depraved that we were hopeless left to ourselves so that he might save you and me. And catch this, Jesus gave everything for us. Don't miss what the cross means. You'll notice in verse 45, if you scroll down there, that he talks about the cross again, explaining what Jesus did as the Son of Man. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. Do, do you see it? Jesus came to give his life for you and me. He came to ransom himself for us. This word for ransom is interesting. It gives us one picture of the atonement where Jesus died for us. Paul uses a similar word elsewhere. It talks of redemption from sin through the death of Christ. In other Greek, it speaks of a, a payment to secure release of a captive or a slave. And we were ransomed from sin, Christ says here. And this is related to that view of Jesus who has ransomed us from our sin debt. He has ransomed us from that. Now that's one view of the atonement. There's a more important one though that it's tied to, and that is that Jesus came and died in our place as our penalty substitute. He died on the cross for us, for you and for me. And and catch this, this is what we find at the cross, something glorious. It's what theologians of the past like Martin Luther have called the sweet exchange. Uh, What happened in the cross? Jesus came and he took all of our sins and our debts and the penalty of sin and the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself in his flesh for you and me. He took on our debt. Uh, But that's not all he did. See, there's a double cure. The second thing that he did in that sweet exchange is he also not only took our sin debt, but he actually gave you and me his righteousness and goodness. Think about it. You're coming before Jesus. And he says, well, you got kind of two options. I mean, you could settle for your goodness with me and we can decide if that's good enough to get eternal life. 
Or you can receive the very righteousness of God in Christ. My goodness, my goodness, whereby I obeyed God in every single way. I never disobeyed God. I never had a sinful thought. I loved him, perfectly did his will, even to the point of laying down my life on the cross where he then raised me up from the dead to declare that he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What an exchange. Brothers and sisters, that's what Christ did for us. He gave us his goodness on the cross if you will repent and believe and put your faith in him. Just think about it. This rich man wouldn't give up his earthly riches for Jesus, but Jesus left heavenly riches to give you and me eternal life. Wouldn't we be fools to give up on such goodness from Christ? Don't be that person today. Don't listen to the wisdom of the world. Listen to the wisdom that is from heaven in Jesus Christ. So Christian, Let me just ask you, as you consider what Christ has done for you, doesn't that just awaken your heart and cause you to want to serve others? Think think about it. We aren't tied down to our riches and our our possessions and our accolades and our, our trophies from second grade soccer. Like, those aren't the things that we have to live for anymore. We actually can live for the God who sent his son to pay it all. And because of him, we have an inheritance that nothing with this world can match. Doesn't that cause you to want to serve? I don't have to earn anything. I've been given more than I can imagine. I am free to serve. I don't have to clutch to this world anymore. I don't have to have this white-knuckled grip because Jesus has freed me up in the gospel. And if you're a non-Christian, you have not put your faith, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, you have not turned from living to sin to listening to him, If you have not turned to living for him, today is the day. Put your faith in Christ. He will make you new. Turn from living for the treasures that you can't keep. When you die, you can't take them with you. Uh, Turn from those to heavenly treasure which promises eternal life in Christ. There's no better deal. Now, if that's you and you need to come to Christ today, please talk to me after the service. I would love nothing more than to share with you how you can put your faith in Christ and be made new. Talk to another Christian here. Uh, We have lots of Christians who would love nothing more than to share Christ with you and lead you to Christ. Don't walk away like this rich young ruler, though, who was sorrowful and maybe even more sorrowful at death. Let's pray.